Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 10th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and the editor of the Daily Appellate Report, a print supplement to the Daily Journal. I'm very excited to welcome you to this edition of the Weekly Appellate Report, your source each Friday for the appellate week that was, featuring commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics. Three great guests join me this week to chat about two California Supreme Court cases with opinions filing imminently. First, we'll hear from MC Sangaila, a partner with Haynes and Boone. She'll opine on Ramos v. Brentag Specialties et al., which addresses tort liability of raw suppliers and will illuminate the limits of the component parts doctrine and likely the related sophisticated intermediary doctrine. Then we'll hear opposing viewpoints from attorneys involved in the case of Baral v. Schnitt, an anti-slap matter. There, the critical question is whether pled causes of action can be parsed by way of an anti-slap motion so that allegations in the claims that wouldn't withstand an anti-slap motion on their own can be disposed of. Though the statute has been around for two decades, this particular question has yet to receive a decisive and lasting answer. Providing these opposing viewpoints will be Mr. Gerald Sawyer of Sawyer and Wagner and Mr. James Wagstaff of Wagstaff and Kerr. Before hearing from my guests, I should give a quick update regarding a case previously discussed on the podcast, the case of Governor Brown versus the Superior Court of Sacramento. In that matter, a criminal justice-related amendment to a ballot initiative championed by the governor hung in the balance. In an opinion released Monday, the state high court voted to approve the amendment's inclusion in the initiative, which will now await voters' consideration in November. I'd also like to remind you that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this show. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, let's get to my conversation with MC Sangaila. Happy to welcome in now MC Sangaila. Ms. Sangaila is a partner with Haynes and Boone in Orange County, and she's a regular source for both the Daily Journal and other legal and general news publications, and also a, a previous guest of the podcast. Ms. Sangaila, welcome back. Thank you, Brian, for having me back. So we're talking about the case Ramos first Brentag Specialties et al., which was argued before the California Supreme Court a few weeks ago, I believe, in early May. And for this case, you participated in uh, writing an amicus brief on behalf of the original defendants and, and respondents. Is that correct? Uh, yes, right. On behalf of the International Association of Defense Counsel and the Federation of Defense and Corporate Counsel. Gotcha. Okay. And mm-hmm. now the issues here relate to, to tort liability, potential tort liability on, on the part of raw material suppliers. And specifically, I believe the question being addressed by the state high court is whether the component parts doctrine can bar negligence or strict liability claims brought by an employee of a processing or manufacturing company against a, a raw material supplier for harm suffered while processing those materials. Is that roughly the, the question presented? That's right. And then there's also an alternative ground that was afloated in the petition and, and in some of the briefing, including the amicus briefing with regard to the sophisticated purchaser doctrine, which the court has now adopted and called the sophisticated intermediary doctrine in its decision in Webb versus Special Electric. That's right. Yeah. From just, I think that was last Monday, I mm-hmm. believe, came down. Yeah. Then before we get into the analysis here, let's back up just for a second and, and touch on some of the underlying facts. So I believe the, the plaintiff here, Ramos, was an employee for a company, Supreme Casting and Pattern Incorporated. I think they manufacture metal parts and other items. He was an employee there for a period of a few decades until 
the late 2000s. And I think his work included handling metals and plaster and castings and and minerals all supplied by a variety of the defendants and respondents in the the case before the California Supreme Court. And in many instances, he would be molding or, or melting these parts and creating with them finished products to be sold to consumers to whom Supreme sells to. Uh, and then towards the end of his employment, I believe he developed pulmonary fibrosis and, and brought suit. Is that a fair surmise of the, the facts here? Yes, that, that is fair. Okay. He brings, I think, negligence claims and strict liability claims based on a failure to warn and based on design defect, but they are dismissed pretty early in the litigation, correct? Yes. Yes. We're talking at a, a demur stage. And they were dismissed as a result of the component parts doctrine, yes? Correct. Okay, then go ahead and lay out for me what the component parts doctrine is. Sure. So, and and in fact, the Supreme Court has just recently talked about the component parts doctrine and and laid out its its contours actually in the Webb decision because there are a a variety of, of these uh, kinds of doctrines like the bulk supplier and the sophisticated purchaser and sophisticated user that all sort of revolve around this this um, these types of circumstances in product liability cases, each getting to uh, a different aspect or a different relationship um, in the in the product chain, but all um, having a common sense of when should we hold someone to have a duty to warn an end user if they aren't directly responsible for a defect and if they really don't have much control over how that defect is manifested? So in the component parts doctrine, that is, if you if there's a supplier of a, of a component part of a product, then that supplier is not liable for injuries caused by the finished product unless the component itself that they supplied was defective and caused injury, or the supplier participated in integrating the component into a product and the integration caused the product to be defective, and then that defect caused the injury. So um, the, the rationale of that is, you know, everyone should be responsible for their piece of the puzzle and the part that they are participating in, and if the, the component part supplier really didn't have anything to do with the ultimate manifestation of defect and injury to the plaintiff, then, then they should not be responsible for that. Um, you mentioned the term finished product. I think a bit of the legal analysis will sort of turn on what that means here. I, th- I think some would argue that in this case, the component parts doctrine might not be a, a perfect fit because at the stage where the plaintiff Ramos is, it seems like there there sort of isn't a finished product yet. He seems to be processing these raw materials. And then after his stage, finished products are produced and sold to consumers. And then it seems like maybe at, at that stage, the uh, component parts doctrine might be more fitting. What would you say to that? Yes, and that's something that came up in the Court of Appeal decision um, and in some places where the the court parted ways with the Maxton decision and saying, hey, this doesn't exactly fit our our textbook understanding of the component parts doctrine because we're, we're, you know, we, we don't have that finished product yet. But I think both the Maxton court and the petitioners and defendants in this um, particular case all point to the fact that, yes, there are all of these, you know, various doctrines, including component parts that are generally applied in that setting, but they all have this underlying 
policy of not making, if you have a lack of control over the, the, the post-sale use of your material, then you should not be responsible for that post-sale use. And here, for example, one of the defendants, Alcoa, is providing aluminum that in itself had no, you know, no hazards posed um, along the lines of what the plaintiff suffered. And then that aluminum is melted in a, a furnace, which then generates hazardous fumes. Well, it's melted in the furnace in a foundry uh, where, where this plaintiff works, and the foundry itself sets forth these processes and during its own processes creates these hazards and the supplier is not there to try to try to warn anyone and the hazard does not come from the aluminum itself but rather the process that that it's being put through. Now, you mentioned there the Maxton case, the Maxton versus Western States Metals, Mm -hmm. which I believe was a previous case in the California Courts of Appeal, which held that the component parts doctrine did foreclose claims that were very similar to Ramos's. Um, Could you Mm -hmm. tell us a bit about that case? Yes, well, and that's that's exactly right. That 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 is what gave rise to the petition for review in this case was that there was a direct conflict between two court of appeal opinions within, in fact, the same appellate district of the second appellate district uh, coming out um, two different ways. And Maxton really adopted the arguments of the defendants with regard to the component parts application, whereas the Court of Appeal decision in, in Ramos uh, really rejected that for some of the reasons that we've already talked about or that you've already mentioned in terms of this doesn't look like the perfect you know, component parts doctrine situation. Okay, so then now, obviously, the California Supreme Court needs to weigh in and and figure out who's Mm -hmm. got the right answer in terms of this defense applied to these particular type of facts. Now, uh, I thought one interesting element of this case is that there's just a ton of respondents, uh, original defendants. Um, I think there's at least 20 respondent briefs for different parties. Does that fact have any bearing on the case? Are there slightly different factual backgrounds that apply to each of these individual respondents? Yeah, and there were multiple petitions for review, too, um, all individually filed and joiners filed as well. So there are, you know, many different petitions for review and then many different merits briefs, many of which, like I say, just tend to join with other briefs. But there are distinct suppliers of different materials, the sort of the metal suppliers, the aluminum suppliers like Alcoa, and then there's a whole separate group of mold material suppliers who supplied a whole range of materials for for making the mold, everything from limestone to marble and just a a wide array of materials. So that could be part of the reason there are many different briefs, that there are slightly different arguments to be made with regard to proposed potential hazards and, and the situation with regard to those materials. And then um, often in these cases in the trial court, with so many defendants in a product liability case, there's often independent representation um, of those defendants. And that independent representation is just sort of carried over to the um, Court of Appeal and to the Supreme Court level, which sometimes isn't the case. Sometimes they are consolidated um, in their briefing because one or two appellate counsel We'll take the lead for the whole group, but that that did not happen here. Okay, sounds like it must have been a crowded courtroom at oral arguments then. Yes. So, 
Sticking here now with the, the component parts doctrine, in the amicus brief that you prepared, you argue that that doctrine should cut off liability for the defendants at issue here. What are your arguments um, as to why that is the case? Actually, in our brief, we focused on the alternative ground, which was the sophisticated okay. purchaser ground, um, because that was you know, not as fully developed by the parties, so we wanted right. to, to supplement that. Um, but the the argument by the part uh, by the defendants with regard to why that doctrine should apply kind of tracks some of the discussion we've been having, which is looking at the bigger picture of product liability law and the policy underlying policy and the reasoning, which which the court you know reiterated actually in the web decision, which is you know we we impose duties and responsibilities where there's some where, where a party has a shot at having made a difference. If, if the party has some culpability and responsibility because it could have done something that, that, that made a difference, then we're, we're going to hold them responsible. But where, where a party is not responsible for an initial defect in anything and, and had no opportunity to either discern what the hazards might be that were created in this foundry by by its products or you know or to get in there and provide any warning to the employees of the foundry then that seems like very far from the kind of case where where we as a matter of policy want to say that these various suppliers should be held responsible now the the court of appeal and the appellants, the original plaintiff, speaking of the policy basis for um, tort liability, they note that this context seems to be somewhat outside the the letter and the spirit of what the component parts doctrine was created to to address. What, what's your thought on that point? Well, I think that it is one of the doctrines that that's um, the closest to this situation. It's similar to the extent that you have provided some part of this manufacturing process and you had nothing to do with the rest of the process or with anything anything else along the way and your contribution did not pose any of these hazards that the plaintiff had. So I think there's definitely an, an you know analogous from a policy standpoint. It isn't the the typical situation. But that's why I mentioned at the outset that there are a number of different related doctrines which the Court of Appeal mentioned too, bulk supplier and you know, sophisticated intermediary and component parts, all of which are revolving around this principle of when and, and how do we hold different members of the supply chain responsible and for what, and um, you know, when does it make sense to do that. So it's definitely with, I mean, in my view, it's within the spirit of the component parts doctrine, but then also some other doctrines are implicated. Sure. Yeah, well, Jump into the sophisticated intermediary defense. Now, you mentioned that a, a big part of the brief that, that you prepared and the Court of Appeal mm -hmm. mentions that it could be a defense in cases like this. Tell me why that could be a resort these defendants could successfully use. Right. Well, the, the, the components to that doctrine, and the Supreme Court has officially adopted it, uh, formally adopted it in, in, in Webb, with some nuances to how it, it applies but has essentially adopted the restatement view with regard to the sophisticated intermediary and that a supplier can discharge its duty to warn end users about known or knowable risks in the use of its product 
if it provides adequate warnings or sells to a sophisticated purchaser that it knows is aware or should be aware of the specific danger. And here, it probably seems reasonable that a, a foundry that is using these various um, products, particularly the um, aluminum, to make metal and to make other, other items, it probably very well knows about the specific danger that it's, itself is creating and that is posed by its, own, its very own processes that it set in place. And then the second part of sophisticated purchasers is this reasonable reliance principle that, that the supplier reasonably relied on the purchaser, the foundry here, to convey appropriate warnings to downstream users who would encounter the product. And the argument would be when you supply to a company and the plaintiff is an employee, well, the employer has an independent duty to warn its employees and it would seem eminently reasonable to rely on them to do that, particularly since they're in the best situation to do that. The, the wrinkles I mentioned with the, the web decision is that um, the, the posture of Ramos is very much earlier in, in proceedings. It's at a demur stage based purely on allegations in the complaint, and there's some indication in web that that doctrine may be more factual, that this question with regard to whether it was reasonable to rely and whether the you know employer was sufficiently knowledgeable or whether there was a warning, those kinds of things seem to be more case-specific and factual. And so the question would be, in some jurisdictions and under some formulations of that doctrine, as we argued in our brief, it should be enough uh, under that doctrine to uphold the demur. But but query whether under this new formulation of web that would happen or whether it would um, result in you know, having that argument made further down the line when the facts in the case have developed. Okay, uh, maybe if we could rewind for a second to before this litigation was filed, uh, let's suppose that you are perhaps of counsel of one of these defendants, Alcoa say. Would there have been some counsel you might have given them at that stage that could have helped them avoid getting into litigation like this? Is there something that um, companies like that could do to protect themselves from cases like this? Well, and I think that some of those things would be very similar to the extent that sophisticated purchaser doctrine is implicated, very similar to what Don Willenberg had um, suggested on the, the podcast recently in talking about web itself, right? If, if it's going to be very factual, you're going to want to make sure that you have some kind of documentation that you provided warnings um, to the employer, or there's some indication in your records of your knowledge of the sophistication of, of the employer, you know, whatever you can do from your end, kind of document that and make sure that you have the factual underpinnings for the defense and for the doctrine. Component parts doctrine itself is a little bit more difficult to to be sort of proactive with because part of it depends on how the court interprets the doctrine itself, right? Does it interpret it sort of in the spirit of and more broadly like Maxton, or does it agree with the court of appeal below and say, you know, no, that that's what that's a narrow doctrine that really applies only in circumstances that aren't here. Right. That one would be much harder to to read the tea leaves and sure. figure out uh, what you should do, you know, back in the day. 
I would say that the the state high court rules in line with the the appellate court and holds that the defendants here, their liability is not cut off by either the component parts doctrine or the sophisticated intermediary defense. How big are the stakes here for defendants such as the ones here and for their their attorneys? Well, I think that, you know, endorsing that kind of view would certainly open up the possibility of, of naming a lot of different folks as defendants in product liability cases you know, all the way down the supply chain, and um, at least encourage plaintiffs to consider doing that, which obviously would have its own attendant risks to all of those companies and the cost of defending those cases, which they might not have otherwise suspected they would be a part of. That's that's certainly part of it. Um, the other part is more doctrinally to product liability and its underpinnings in California, which the defendants, you know, come across really strongly about in their briefs, which is that you know, combining the understanding of the component parts doctrine and even the court's recent announcement in O'Neill versus Cranco, which really was founded on the proposition that you know, you're only uh, responsible for deficiencies in your own product, not somebody else's, that, that that would really be kind of a step away from where the court has been going in the past. So I would think that, especially in light of its embracing sophisticated intermediary and web, the court may well suggest that either that doctrine or component parts could be a bar to liability here, but they may hedge those bets a little bit by by suggesting that it's not something that can be taken care of at the demur stage, but needs to be factual, a defense and doctrine that needs to be factually developed and then could be pursued, you know, maybe at summary judgment or even at trial. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there, and, and we'll find out the answer to, to our questions here soon enough when the ruling comes out in a few weeks. Ms. Sangaila, thanks so much for being on the program. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it as well. Once again, that was MC Sangaila from Haynes & Boone. We'll now get to my conversation with Mr. Gerald Sawyer. Joining us now is Gerald Sawyer. Mr. Sawyer is a founding partner of Sawyer and Wagner, and he's argued cases before the California Supreme Court, the U.S. Federal Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit. Mr. Sawyer, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we'll be talking about Baral versus Schnitt, and the issue in this case is where you have a party who has pled a cause of action that includes both allegations of activity that is protected under the anti-slap statute and allegations of activity that is not protected. In this context, the question is whether an anti-slap motion can dispose of or excise out of those causes of action those allegations that pertain to protected activity and leave only the meritorious allegations against non-protected activity. Is that a fair surmise? Yes, it is. I think that the one clarification I would make is that in the context of the protected activity within the mixed cause of action, that it must be meritless. At least that's the argument in order to be excised from that cause of action. Then sort of zooming out just for a second, and without getting too elementary, I'm sure the majority of our listeners have a pretty firm grasp of the anti-slap statute, but could you briefly walk me through the history of the anti-slap statute and its intended purpose? Uh, The statute, uh, at least uh, from uh, case law and and legislative history, uh, was enacted in order to uh, 
provide a tool for the courts to eliminate a litigation that was completely meritless, that was designed to basically uh, stop a party from either exercising their uh, rights of free speech or rights to petition, which is the right to participate in the courts or in an administrative proceeding. And the best example I can give you that is used is that the situation where we may have a, a group picketing a uh, development site and the developer turns around and sues uh, the little group that's picketing, the individuals and possibly any lawyer uh, representing them, not for the purpose of any merit other than to drag them into a courtroom, make them expend money in defending themselves, and the developer utilizes uh, the litigation as a tool for purposes of pushing through that development and squelching the party that's exercising the First Amendment rights. That's sort of the quintessential uh, example of what the statute was originally intended to do. It's obviously been broadened over time and over 20 years as uh, how it's applied. What's so unique about this procedural mechanism? I mean, there are other ways to dispose of cases early on in litigation. How does it differ and why is it so important as compared to a motion to dismiss, a demur, a motion to strike, things like that? Well, the SLAP statute has, uh, at least in uh, oral argument, I refer to it as, as a weapon of mass destruction. The reason I use that terminology is that upon the filing of the SLAP statute, it stays discovery. It precludes amendment of the complaint. If it is triggered, it shifts the burden over to the plaintiff to demonstrate the probability of prevailing on the merits. And a lot of times, without any discovery, I mean, you can go in and try and get some, but it really is difficult. It mandates an award of attorney's fees to the successful moving party, the party bringing the motion, and then fees are discretionary if you defeat the motion. And it also provides an automatic right to appeal. So generally, I think the simplistic way to look at it is that this particular procedural mechanism will stop a lawsuit in its tracks and force a party that is subject to it to immediately, uh, through the process, put up that evidence to show if, in fact, they have a meritorious claim or not. And then when an anti-slap motion is filed, the court walks a two-step process, correct? Yes. Uh, the tool uh, is normally uh, described as having two prongs. Uh, the first prong, the burden is put on the moving party in that they must show that the activity or, or the allegations or conduct, and, and let me be careful here, on the first prong, you're either knocking out a, a complaint in its entirety or a cause of action. And what you're looking for then in terms of prong one is, does the cause of action or the complaint encapsulate either an attack on free speech or the right to petition the courts? Assuming that the defendant, and this is construed very broadly, satisfies prong one, Prong two, now the burden shifts over to the party opposing the motion to demonstrate a probability of prevailing on the claims, the causes of action or the allegations in the complaint. And as foreshadowing issue uh, on the discussion in front of the Supreme Court, uh, we're not talking about how the attorney has organized things on the page. What we're talking about is the court engaging in an analysis as to uh, whether or not, again, there's any merit to the complaint or cross-complaint in its entirety or the causes of action that are set forth in the uh, pleading. 
This particular issue is a specific one within the context of the anti-slap statute, dealing with whether or not within this single cause of action certain allegations could be excised that, if pled by themselves, an individual cause of action would, would fall to an anti-slap motion. Uh, and this particular issue has seen a bit of precedential history, and it's a bit of a convoluted history. I, I think the first court to address this was the uh, Man versus Quality Old-Time Service Court in 2004, the 4th uh, Appellate District. Now, this is a case that you cite a fair bit in your brief. Walk me through this case. In the Man case, the court was confronted with what it called a mixed cause of action. Basically, it had some factual allegations that it felt were protected and some that were not. And the analysis basically was they looked sort of at the, uh, the thrust of, of what the claims were. And long and short of it, what it decided was that when we're looking at a cause of action that is mixed, that rather than having the court within that cause of action go through every single allegation that gives rise to that cause of action, if in fact one of the allegations has merit to it, the court does not have to go further in its analysis. So the man rule stands for the proposition that, look, when we get to prong two, rather than forcing the party opposing the motion to demonstrate that they will prevail on every single allegation that makes up that mixed cause of action, as long as they can demonstrate that they will prevail on one of them, and the fact that when you examine it, that a part of it is with merit, we're not going to exercise the other, the other components. In other words, that's what the legislative intent of the statute is. So that's how man comes down. And historically, other than a couple of outliers, man has been followed not only by the uh, appellate courts that's been cited and, and followed in uh, Ninth Circuit court opinions, so uh, the Mann decision from 2004 has held up at least the test of time thus far as being the proper methodology for analyzing a mixed cause of action under the SLAP statute. You, you mentioned that other courts have, have cited this case. One of those courts, indeed, is the California Supreme Court. In the case of Oasis West Realty versus Goldman in 2011, it, it cites Mann with approval. But four years earlier, in the case of Taos versus Loftus, the court held a different position and held that portions of causes of action could be disposed of. Taos, based on the reading of the opinion, is not a mixed cause of action case. There's no discussion on it. But the importance of Taos is, uh, comes later when we get to the two outliers as far as uh, appellate courts looking at that and glomming onto it as authority for uh, potentially parsing allegations. Now, the Oasis decision does, in fact, quote, man. And in Oasis, which was it's an interesting case in terms of a former attorney representing a developer, then eventually the relationship ends, and then that same attorney is out picketing the, the same developer that uh, he had represented with respect to a development. And uh, you had... Uh, what I would call the garden variety claims of breach of fiduciary duty, negligence, and breach of contract. And um, uh, the court cites to man. The court then picks up and just looks at one of the claims. And it basically states in that opinion that if the plaintiff can just show a probability of prevailing on any part of its claim, the cause of action is not meritless and will not be stricken. 
Once a plaintiff shows a probability of prevailing on any part of its claim, the plaintiff has established that its cause of action has some merit and the entire cause of action stands. So you have Taos that sort of doesn't talk about man on the books. You then have uh, Oasis quoting the man rule by uh, citing to it. It's then been found in, in later decisions to mean that it implicitly rather than explicitly affirmed the man rule, which again deals with how you handle mixed causes of action. Now, enter your case, which seems poised to settle this question once and for all. In this case, and there's a fair amount of facts that seem to still be in contention, but it seems safe to say that your client, Mr. Baral, and Mr. Schnitt had a, a business relationship that soured, and the upshot is this lawsuit. And after a couple of different complaints being pled and amended, we end up with one where there's uh, multiple mixed causes of action, and including one for breach of fiduciary duty. And within that breach of fiduciary duty cause of action, there are some allegations pertaining to, I believe, a company audit that was conducted. And those allegations were deemed to be protected activity under the anti-slap statute. But some of the allegations within the cause of action were unprotected. So the question is raised whether those, those allegations that pertain to the audit could be excised. Do I have that fairly stated? Uh, yes, that's correct. My firm, I didn't get involved in the case until uh, uh, after the, the initial and the first amended complaint had been prepared, and both of those uh, were, were subject to slap motion. When I came on board and the case had been stayed for now a period of well over a year or more, my intent was to, uh, uh, number one, uh, get the case moving. Two was to distill down what had been 18 causes of action down to simply four. Uh, and three, to not have uh, put in any allegations that in any way, shape, or form touched on the uh, slap statute. That slap motion is unique to anything thus far that's been filed in Burrell because it actually on its face just talks about parsing allegations. It doesn't mention the word cause of action doesn't talk about man, and so at the trial court level in Burrell, the trial court judge uh, looked at it and said, look, uh, the slap statute's not designed to parse allegations. I'm denying the motion. You're going against what, uh, the, motion, what the intent of the statute is, what it states on its face, so the motion was denied. And we never got to what I would say even a prong one or a prong two analysis by the trial court because the motion on its face with respect to the relief requested was not proper. Uh, Mr. Schnitt and his counsel decided to appeal. And the appeal, again, same arguments, just basically that this was an attempt at somehow at artful pleading on our part that we were trying to resurrect defamation and slander claims. And uh, we did prevail uh, at the court of appeal level. Now, with respect to the allegations so that they're, they're clear is that uh, you have basically four claims. The first three claims deal with a business deal whereby as a co-managing uh, member, Mr. Burrell was not permitted to engage in negotiations. He was not permitted to uh, uh, have an ownership interest in the company that bought the business that was for sale. And he did not, uh, he was not given an opportunity to possibly become employed in the new business entity, whereas his co-managing member, Mr. Schnitt, was. That would be deemed the unprotected activity in the breach of fiduciary duty uh, cause of action. 
the protected activity, alleged protected activity, had to do with that, uh, and that's where I spent time crafting it, but basically that, again, with respect to a freezing out of Mr. Burrell's rights, he was uh, not permitted uh, to provide any information to the accounting firm that had conducted a fraud audit in the context of the sale. So Mr. Burrell, in the context of that audit, as a co-managing member, had requested the opportunity to submit information to the uh, auditors to show them that some of their, a couple conclusions that they had reached that involved Mr. Burrell were, were wrong. And as co-managing member, Mr. Schnitt seized upon this and, and told uh, the auditors they couldn't consider any information from Mr. Burrell that he wasn't a co-managing member. The whole point on the allegation, again, and what the relief sought and the harm was similar to the transaction, and this occurs right after it, Mr. Schnitt was trying to use this, this uh, fraud audit as a mechanism to possibly get Mr. Burrell to stand down on bringing any claims for being frozen out of the deal. So the Court of Appeal found that even with the fourth allegation, that it simply dealt with, again, when we talk about the fraud audit, that it also dealt with Mr. Burrell's rights as a co-managing member, and uh, that even though it didn't involve any communicative conduct, prong one was satisfied in our case, at least based on the Court of Appeal analysis, and I'll get to it, but we'll talk about Hunter versus CBS in a second, but basically the non-communicative conduct as far as Mr. Schnitt being able to decide who uh, could be involved in, in doing a fraud audit, uh, that that triggered the SLAP statute. And on prong two, the Court of Appeals said, well, we had an abundance of uh, evidence to show that Mr. Burrell could prevail on his claims with respect to being frozen out of the transaction uh, and not being given the same opportunities as Mr. Schnitt. So the Court of Appeals said in that instance that uh, we feel that the motion, despite falling under the SLAP statute in theory, uh, that Mr. Burrell prevails under prong two. The Court of Appeal made a very interesting observation because it said that in the context of the SLAP statute, that they're more concerned uh, where you could say that you were concerned about artful pleading, that plaintiffs will try to evade the slap statute by combining protected and unprotected conduct, uh, labeling it under one cause of action, uh, the Court of Appeals said we're more concerned about uh, also on the flip side that defendants will simply use the statute as a garden variety motion to strike in order to stop actions uh, by trying to glom onto anything that could conceivably touch upon uh, the slap statute. So long and short of it is, is that the Court of Appeal felt that in applying the man rule, in our case, once we had satisfied under one of the claims enough evidence, it did not have to go through an analysis. And in fact, the Court of Appeal in Burrell criticized both City of Colton and Cho for straying from what the intent of the SLAP statute is and what other courts had found. So that's sort of the teeing up of what our case is, and then the Supreme Court ultimately grants a review on the issue, at least the, the main core issue of whether or not a SLAP statute can be used to parse allegations. 
your opposing counsel in this in this matter, James Wagstaff, he argued in his brief that, that being able to parse protected allegations in a cause of action would, would be more in line with the spirit of the anti-slap statute, which you know seeks to quickly dispose of unmeritorious claims. How how do you counter that point? We've made it clear uh, from the Burrell side that we're not arguing that when a court analyzes a complaint and determines causes of action, that in fact it can apply a uh, primary rights analysis in order to determine uh, what is the uh, cause of action. Where I disagree, where we really disagree, and what I think the California Supreme Court is grappling with is you're going to have lawyers, and it's, it's difficult trying to determine or argue what is the primary right. So we're going to run, run into situations whereby any fact, any portion of a fact that uh, may say the history of the case, even though it may be inconsequential, consequential, that that somehow is going to trigger the primary rights analysis and satisfy prong one. And so what uh, the concern is on, on our side is that, in fact, uh, that you're going to end up with a scenario whereby slap statutes are going to be used like garden variety motions to strike. And the problem is, is that um, if that's the case, it, it's taking it outside of what the, legis uh, the legislature intended. The statute number one on its face is crystal clear that it has to be either the entirety of the complaint is meritless or the cause of action. So I don't believe that the California Supreme Court can rewrite the statute, that if anything, if that's the intent, the legislature, which has amended it over time, uh, would have to make that amendment. And thus far, uh, they haven't uh, done so. I felt that the law is there presently. I don't know, you know, and my concerns are that uh, if the Supreme Court somehow comes up with a rule that lawyers now are going to view as broadening the slap statute to allow them to excise allegations, uh, I think that uh, we're going to have a situation where the pendulum shifts too far over, and I do both plaintiff and defense, but shifts too far over to the defense side with respect to pretty much uh, making it fair game to bring a, sta a slap statute on any allegation. So to sum up, I think that when you look at the statute on its face, the legislative intent, which is meritless cause of action, causes of action or, or complaints, and you look at the cost on a system down at the trial court level that is already overburdened with the budget cuts, that you're going to broaden this, uh, it's going to make it difficult. Your, your counterpart mentions that if the case came down the way that you would like it to, it could incentivize some creative pleading whereby a party would combine meritorious and unmeritorious claims into a single cause of action and, and thus give shelter to the, the unmeritorious ones. And it sounds like you downplay that concern a bit. Well, I don't downplay it. Actually, uh, City of Colton uh, uh, made uh, uh, the case for me. Thus far, uh, and we took a look in terms of uh, leading up to our case. Uh, we ran slap, you know, the, the uh, slap statute, and on the searches we did, we tried to find any cases whereby the court commented that, oh, look, you know, our hands are tied. We've got to apply the man rule, but really what's going on here is the plaintiff is engaging in artful pleading. 
as I pointed out to the California Supreme Court, we found no such cases. And in fact, what you found, uh, and that is City of Colton, if anything, you have found inartfully pleaded uh, um, complaints, cross complaints. The fact is, is that uh, it reminds me sort of of uh, Chicken Little and the Sky is Falling, that, that, oh my God, all these plaintiffs are going to see an opportunity to, to, you know, get around the slap statute. And thus far in over 20 years, uh, there's no test cases. You would have thought there would be, uh, before Burrell in the 20 years, there would be numerous cases talking about artful pleading trying to get around the slap statute. That's not happened. I'll leave you with this one. Having had a chance to present your cause to the state high court, give me a best forecast as to how you see this case coming down. Well, based on the way the oral argument went uh, in Burrell, I think that the sole issue that the California Supreme Court is grappling with is trying to clarify the standard for um, analyzing slap motions. And um, I believe that at the end of the day that the California Supreme Court will uh, affirm the man rule, but I also believe that it's going to probably, uh, through uh, dicta, and looking at Burrell, I, I think try to um, put a little bit more meat on the bones in terms of how the uh, trial courts, practitioners, and courts of appeal are to um, analyze uh, complaints and uh, causes of action. And so I, I think there, and, and the concern I believe is that. They don't want to see any more outliers uh, so that they truly do have, you know, I, I don't view it as a split personally when you've got uh, over 20-something reported and unreported decisions that follow the man rule. So I believe they will affirm the man rule, but I think they'll provide a little bit more clarity on, on how you utilize the anti-slap statute. I think that's why we ended up there, and I think maybe what they're going to do is look at all the decisions that have talked about various issues and put it all together in one one opinion. Well, great. We'll leave it there and await this opinion set to come down in the next few weeks. Mr. Gerald Sawyer, I greatly appreciate you joining the program and best of luck in this case and all the others that I'm sure you're, you're busy working on. Thank you for the opportunity. Again, that was Mr. Gerald Sawyer of Sawyer and Wagner. We'll now hear from Mr. James Wagstaff, who will provide an opposing view on the matter of Burrell or Schnitt. Happy to have Mr. Jim Wagstaff join us now. Mr. Wagstaff is partner at Kerr and Wagstaff in San Francisco and argued on behalf of the original defendant in this case, Mr. Schnitt, and the petitioner at the California Supreme Court. Mr. Wagstaff, thanks for, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking about this important issue. So we've just heard from your opposite number in the oral arguments, Mr. Gerald Sawyer. But before we sort of dive in, let's, let's reset the issue here and uh, make sure we're framing it exactly right, because it can be, you know, a little bit technical and perhaps a bit confusing um, for folks that aren't super well-versed in anti-slap law. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's, uh, I believe the issue here revolves around causes of action referred to as mixed causes of action, which contain a number of different discrete allegations some of which, if, were, if they were brought independently as causes of action in their own right, would fall 
under an anti-slap motion. And so the question is whether those types of allegations should be able to be excised out of a mixed cause of action by way of an anti-slap motion. Do I have that right? Yeah, you've got it right. I, I, I used the, in the oral argument for the Supreme Court, I used uh, the more colloquial term schmushing. That is that a, uh, a plaintiff can, can, because they get freedom to, to have the counts they want, can smush more than one cause of action into a single count. So, for example, someone sues someone for defamation, as in one of the cases, and they include in the same count, or uh, they include uh, statements made to the, a government body, which is privileged, and statements made to coworkers, which is not privileged. And the, the question is, can one do an anti-slap motion when the plaintiff does some smushing? Okay, and then that obviously hints a bit at some of the, the policy considerations we'll jump into in just a second. But before we get to the the considerations in this case, I'd like to have you walk me through a bit of the, the precedent that is pertinent in this context. Uh, Mr. Sawyer walked us through a bit of it as well, but I imagine he focused on certain cases that you might find less persuasive and certainly that you argued shouldn't carry the day in this in this litigation. He mentioned, for instance, the case of the man, and he relied on that very prominently in his briefing and in his conversation with me. But it sounds like there's a bit of a mixed terrain when it comes to where courts have fallen on this issue in the past several years. Oh, absolutely. The, 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 that's why the Supreme Court, I think, took the case, because there was a, a very stark division among the California Courts of Appeal, and sometimes a stark division within the very uh, District Court of Appeal itself. Right. In this very case, the, uh, the underlying Court of Appeal decision, uh, you know, uh, went one way, and in a different group of judge justices in the same division, the same district, went a different way. Yeah, the case law happened because the man decision, what we think for the first time, said, "Hey, you know, the word in the st- in the statute for the anti-slap is it says you can strike a cause of action." And therefore, the man's court said if any part of the allegations in a cause of action are actionable, uh, even if uh, otherwise protected or unprotected, then the case goes forward. Many cases since man have said, no, that's not what the law is. That would allow plaintiffs to do, to do an end round the anti-slap statute by smushing together two separate primary rights, call them a single count, and if any part of it, even the unprotected part, is valid, then it goes forward. So we, there's, there's a case called City of Colton versus Singletary, uh, which held that you can't smush and rejected the man decision as a way of doing an end around the anti-slap statute. Similarly, uh, a case called Cho versus Chang, which I referenced a moment ago, where there was a single count of a defamation, but one part was protected and one wasn't. The, 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 the defendant could still bring a motion to strike if the part of the count would have been a separate primary right. That case you just mentioned, Cho versus Ching, that came out of the second appellate district, like the the current case we're talking about, Baral versus Schnitt, but went the other way. Did you find it interesting that you know, the second appellate district, now just a different division of that district, sided sort of completely on the opposite side of this question? Well, it it, it did find it interesting, but it, it's reflective of, of, of the, the balkanization in the whole state, which is why the Supreme Court, I think, is addressing this case, because the man decision, uh, if, if the, that line of cases which says, you know, if any part's good, it would, it would facilitate a plaintiff uh, by just choosing unilaterally to combine separate primary rights into a single count, call it a cause of action, and then prevent someone from uh, bringing in a slap motion. It would be a very a clever way of avoiding the statute. And the Cho case from the same, from the same district, admittedly, that, that's interesting, said, no, that case is wrongly decided. And... Uh, Perhaps everyone was trying to tee this up for the Supreme Court of California, and we were the lucky persons to be able to argue it. 
Sure. So now, obviously, you've been in an edit. Your case at the second appellate district fell in line with the man line of precedent. Uh, tell me why you think that was the incorrect decision for the court to make. Well, I I think that it was incorrect because uh, you, otherwise the statute could be so easily avoided. This statute was passed, and by statute is to be interpreted broadly. Uh, it was passed so that people who are facing uh, allegations of what are otherwise protected conduct, often free speech or petitioning activities, um, so they can go and get an early disposition of that case and avoid the chilling effect of that lawsuit pending. And it can be done, not doesn't have to be the whole case, it can be by cause of action. And by the way, nothing new here. We've been doing that on summary adjudication motions in the state for, 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 for many, many decades. The courts of appeal have been very clear that you could bring a summary adjudication motion to part of a, quote, cause of action, if it's really a separate primary right. And so uh, the man decision uh, would allow that to happen, and frankly, it would increase the burden on courts. They probably will talk about it, you know, eliminating anti-slap motions. It'll increase the burden on courts because now if we have someone who has, a, has smushed in a single count protected and unprotected activity, they can still bring an anti-slap motion even under man as long as they can get rid of both parts. And that doesn't seem right to require an early anti-slap motion to unprotected speech. That doesn't make any sense. So I think the courts that have been have found troubles with man are, are, are better reasoned. Okay, you say something there that you know, this is something for which there are different procedural devices and, and longer standing ones, motions for summary adjudication to knock out parts of causes of action. Um, Mr. Sawyer mentions that the fact that that is true, that there are other mechanisms to do the work that you want the anti-slap motion to do in this context. And the fact that they exist means that maybe you don't need the anti-slap motion to be able to knock these things out because you have those other procedural devices. What do you say to that? Well, I, I, I think of the, the, the quote from Mark Twain who says there's a difference between lightning and the lightning bug. Uh, what I mean by that is it's all well and good to say we can have a summary adjudication motion right near the end of, near the end of discovery. The point of the statute, the anti-slap statute, was to allow for an early termination and to shift attorney's fees. It's a very powerful statute. Uh, as Mr. Sawyer argued, the Supreme Court, it's by design, it's designed to shift attorneys' fees if they can't prevail and prove, prove the facts showing that, that there's a valid cause of action. It is also uh, uh, allows for an immediate appeal. It requires that the action be stayed pending that appeal. This is also we don't expose people to these kind of meritless suits that affect free speech rights. And I want to highlight, when you use the word cause of action, it's not a part of a cause of action. Our argument was very clear. If someone has merely factual allegations, that's not subject to a motion to strike. It's subject to a motion to strike if the allegations themselves give rise to a separate primary right. So, for example, in the, the case I just, the Chode case, in that case you had really two separate defamations. One was a defamation allegedly by statements made to the EEOC and the DFEH saying, hey, you know, uh, uh, allegedly falsely saying that there was sexual harassment. And then statements made to coworkers, one protected clearly by talking to the government, one arguably not. In that case, those are two separate primary rights. They're defamations at different times. The same is true in the city of Colton case. You had an allegation that, that, the, the, that the plaintiff, that the, by the plaintiff, that there had been bribery by the defendant and, and re related allegations that they'd done bad things by filing a lawsuit. They smushed those together in the same cause of action, quote, same cause of action, really the same count, but those are separate primary rights. So if it's a separate primary right, then the anti-slap statute has to apply.
And that reasoning right there seems like perhaps your biggest disagreement with the Court of Appeal in this case. The first reason they gave for ruling the way they did was a textual reason, a statutory interpretation based on the text of the statute, which referred to a cause of action. And they said, well, that's the important term. But as you say, there's sort of more nuance to it than just whether it's pled as a cause of action or not. Well, I'm not sure. It's, I, I like your word nuance. I just don't think it fits here. The word, the phrase cause of action is not some abstract phrase we've never talked about before. California jurisprudence for 150 years has told us what a cause of action is for res judicata purposes, for summary adjudication purposes, for demur purposes, and for anti-slap purposes. A cause of action is not what the plaintiff labels as a count or smushes together or separates. A cause of action is if it involves a, it's the same primary right. If you and I get in an accident today and we get in another accident two weeks from now, they may be related in the sense that we're the same parties and we have similar injuries, but clearly those are two separate causes of action. Uh, and so the phrase primary right has been, has been interpreted by the California courts in these other contexts for literally for a century and a half. So there's nothing really new here. The, so the, the question is, can the plaintiff take what could be and should be two separate causes of action, smush them together, and by so smushing, avoid the anti-slap statute? That's what we're hopeful the Supreme Court will see is the problem and would defeat the entire purpose of any slap statute by allowing plaintiffs to uh, uh, tactically plead it. And we're also not on a blank slate. The California Supreme Court, in an earlier case, in a, in a, a case called Taos v. Loftus, had a case in which there's an invasion of privacy label, and in the count, it listed four separate invasions of privacy, although it's all the same count in the plaintiff's complaint. The California Supreme Court had no trouble finding that three of them were subject to any slap statute and one survived. So I, while the Supreme Court didn't have to address this man issue because it came later, in practice, that's exactly what they did. Okay, and referring to the purpose of the anti-slap statute, this is another area where you and the Court of Appeal part ways. In your brief, you say, were the California Supreme Court to rule on your side, that would fall more in line with the purpose of the statute. But the Court of Appeal says that their ruling, in fact, more fully supports the original purpose of the anti-slap statute. Well, what do you make of this uh, disagreement between you and, and the court? Well, it, happily, it's a, it's, it's a vacated opinion now because it's before the Supreme Court. Sure. I say happily not because I'm, dis, I'm disrespectful. It's to say the reason I think it's, it's wrongly decided is because it's based on the Mann decision. Mann was a case in which you had two separate defamations involving two separate primary rights, and yet the plaintiff called that a single counter defamation, and because one of them was protected and one wasn't protected, uh, and couldn't, you know, one could survive the anti-slap statute and one couldn't, they, the whole case goes down. And that would allow plaintiffs very cleverly to, to, to as I kept saying, smushing. I was asked by one of the justices of the Supreme Court, is smushing a word? I said, absolutely, <laughs> smushing is a word. And I told them if, if my kids, who are younger than me, of course, uh, wanted me to use a word, they'd use the word mashup, like when you mash up songs right. together. But the fact is the plaintiff, we would defeat the purpose of the anti-slap statute if we allowed those otherwise protected and meritless, because remember, you don't get an anti-slap motion granted unless the court finds it's meritless, meritless, uh, uh, you know, primary right to go forward. And it would, uh, it would frustrate the very broad purpose of the anti-slap statute, which is to uh, discourage, may I say, people from bringing frivolous, frivolous uh, causes of action. On a different point, Mr. Sawyer makes sort of a logistic policy argument when he says that were the case to come down on your side and individual pieces of pled causes of action be subject to anti-slap motions, uh, this could cause some interminable delays with litigation by sort of encouraging these motions to be filed per perhaps more often than they would otherwise. Um, what do you make of, of that policy argument? 
I, I think it, it is exactly wrong. The, 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 the man rule encourages people to bring anti-slap motions even if it involves unprotected activity. That's number one. This will eliminate the need to do that. It, it'll encourage plaintiffs to actually plead their claims appropriately by putting separate cause of action in separate counts. But putting that to one side, uh, that's what the statute tells us. They, they, you know, they talk about interminable delay. Well, that's, that, you go to the legislature if you want to change that. The statute says that if there's a cause of action, and that is defined as a separate primary right, not how the plaintiff labels it, if there is a, if there's a cause of action that is subject to the anti-slap statute, the legislature said we want that case to be stayed. We want attorney's fees to be shipped, and we want to make sure plaintiffs don't do that unless they have all their ducks in a row, legally and factually, at the outset of the case. Because these cases involve First Amendment rights, and the point of the anti-slap statute is to prevent the chilling of free speech, or, if you will, to give breathing room to, to people engaged in that activity. So I think, uh, and remember, it's, it's, it's a little facile to say, oh my goodness, people will be bringing anti-slap motions on individual allegations. Our argument, and it's, the, and it's the definition of the word cause of action, the statute, the phrase cause of action, is that it has to be a separate primary right. In our case, our case is a great example, by the way. Our case is a case where they brought their lawsuit and had a separate defamation claim, two defamation claims, and other claims arising out of you know, a business transaction. The court granted the anti-slap motion. They, uh, they then uh, didn't, uh, they, they filed an appeal and abandoned their appeal, and then they refiled their case, this time smushing the defamation allegations into the business tort allegations. Two separate primary rights involving separate issues. And it highly illustrates the problem of, of someone being able to avoid the anti-slap statute uh, by the artifice of, of their labeling. That's not what the word cause of action means. One thing I find interesting about this case is obviously the stage of the litigation is still somewhat preliminary. Whichever way this ruling comes down, there's still a fair bit of litigation ahead of both of uh, both of the parties. And one thing that the Court of Appeal mentioned is that even if they were to side with, with your side, you know, there would still be the same number of counts for you guys to defend. So were you to prevail, what exactly have you won here? Why is this point so important? Oh, it's very important. The claims that they originally brought and were thrown out for defamation were based on submission of uh, uh, certain information to, a, to an, a litigation auditor, that is, a forensic auditor. And the, the concern of the plaintiff was that that audit produced information that they, they, they believe was false and defamatory. Obviously, the litigation may demonstrate that it was not false by any means. But in any event, that cause of action would require the auditor to testify. It would require all sorts of litigation uh, with respect to the truth or falsity of what was in the audit. As contrasted with just whether the business deal went went south or not, or was done or was it done appropriately? So, if this motion is granted, and the, uh, that is the Supreme Court, of, you know, rules that the motion should be granted, it can result in an enormous savings of time, an enormous uh, uh, reduction in the number of depositions, and the reduction probably by a very large factor of the amount of documents that need to be exchanged. So, this isn't just an abstract question. In this case, it's real world, and of course. It's real world because attorney's fees should be shifted if this was properly granted. Uh, with those serious and important implications in mind then, and to the extent you'd be willing to forecast how, having argued the case, do you see it coming down? Well, it's interesting. At the oral argument, uh, my, my opponent's attorney basically agreed with us that the statute means that if it's a separate primary right, uh, then, uh, of course, the statute should apply. So to some extent, it would appear that they were even... Uh, themselves saying that man was wrongly decided because man was clearly two separate primary rights with two separate defamations squished into one. So if it's if the test is primary right, 
and we eliminate only those allegations from the statute's purview that are incidental, then I think it's, this will, case will, will come down to the court issuing a ruling that says that if it's a separate primary right, as in our case, such as defamation and separate business torts, uh, then uh, the anti-slap statute can be used no matter how the plaintiff labels it. Then it'll become a question of whether, uh, in this case, they perceive that to be a separate primary right, and as I've indicated, it, it clearly is, because the, the, uh, the alleged falsity of the audit report is the sole and exclusive basis for their request for an injunction. That's, a se- that's not only a separate primary right, it's a separate remedy they're seeking. That'll all be stricken, as it should be, and uh, this case can go forward free from the, uh, the otherwise invalid defamation allegations. I think we'll leave it there and await uh, the ruling in this case that should come down in just the next few weeks. Mr. Wagstaff, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Our program for June 10th, 2016, is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity to once more thank my guests, MC Sangaila, Gerald Sawyer, and James Wagstaff. And I'd like to thank you as well for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget, you can receive CLE credit for having listened to the show. Just find the link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Once again, I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.